Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Aziza Hassan, named an influencer by the Chronicle of Philanthropy, is the executive director of Newground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change. She has extensive experience in program management and coalition building. An experienced mediator and conflict transformation practitioner, she has co-facilitated with multiple groups of people. Aziza served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships from 2015 to 2016. And also, the Executive Service Corps recognized her with the Megan G. Cooper Leadership Award in 2017. Aziza currently serves on Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's Interfaith Advisory Council and is a volunteer mediator with the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office. I had the chance to meet her a few months ago, and I'm very happy you'll get a chance to hear from her today. She talks a lot about issues dealing with indoctrination. And once I heard her speak and got to meet her, I thought it would be wonderful to have her on the podcast. Here's Aziza now. So I want to welcome Aziza Hassan onto the show today. And I'm so happy to have you on because I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time since I went to a lunch where you were speaking for your organization uh, through invited through my friend, Rachel Andrus, the wonderful Rachel Andrus, who's gotten me involved in a lot of different organizations that do a lot of good things around the world. Um, but I remember being very compelled to hear about your story and what prompted you to be interested in this and also the very interesting work that your organization does uh, in a meaningful, but also in a very tangible, practical way. And so I'm very happy to have you on. So Aziza, do you mind just spending a moment introducing yourself. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and yes, Rachel Anders seems to pull me into lots of really good things too. <laughs> um, she's just naturally that way. I think that's one of the things I love about being in community with Rachel and people who just care about making the world a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I was born in Amman, Jordan to a Caucasian woman from the Midwest who is Methodist till this day. And my dad's Muslim Palestinian. And they we grew up in this space that um, that honored the where they honored one another, but where we were raised Muslim. And I went to, you know, a, a school that uh, where we focused on Islam. And then I went to Bible study with my mom on Wednesdays. And it was one of these things where I always felt like I was having to either take care of one of the other parents because somebody wasn't accepting them for some reason or the other. And so it's like, it was like on the job training for what I do now in terms of being able to say, let's take a pause right now and let's look at, you know, what is it that you're really asking? Um, and getting to the essence of what someone was actually saying, because a lot of times they would say something and it would trigger something in me where I would feel defensive or I would feel angry because they weren't seeing the incredible human being that was my other parent. And it has really led me down this journey of what does it really mean to have intentional communication, to speak your truth in a way that somebody can hear it and to see what somebody else is trying to say, even if they're saying it poorly. 
what does it mean to create community with each other? Because while I knew that love was possible between my parents, I also grew up in the reality that was Jordan and Israel and Palestine and everything in between. And like there was there was literally like a, a firewall between Jordan and Israel while I was growing up. It was a like a border that was impenetrable. America was closer than Israel was. And it was this place that my dad kept talking about because it was a place that like he like he was he was born in this little tiny town called Kobab and the fruit would make his belly ache because he would always eat too much whenever it came in season. Like he loved it, but it was mythical the way he described it. And so when Jordan signed the peace accords in the 1990s, I wanted to go see this mythical place because all of a sudden this border was going to be like, there was a possibility and my school was going to go over and onto the other side. And I remember signing up for this trip and, um, my dad supported it and said, go, it's, everything's fine. And the teachers just talked it up and they kept saying things like, this is going to be making history. This is like, you're going to look back on this moment and it's going to be so special. And so I was really parroting a lot of the words they were saying. Um, And I was at my best friend's home shortly before the trip. And I was telling her about all the details because it was was an ecology club trip. We were going to go and study the, the sediments. And it was... I just remember being in in the room and um, I was telling her all these details and she said to me, no, and, and her dad walked in and he looked at me and he said, traitor. And I was, I was taken aback and I didn't quite know what was going on. And I realized through time, like, because she told me that her, her grandfather and her, um, her uncle had been killed during the 1967 war, they were fleeing the Jordan Valley. They wanted to get home and they were killed. And he grew up without his dad. And he has all these special moments where he didn't have his dad. And so I realized after, you know, I went home and I told my dad what happened. And he said, you know what? Like, I, I know it's hard. And sometimes you have to put one foot in front of the other. I want you to go and see. And so that's what I did. I put one foot in front of the other and I went and I saw. And what I saw was, yes, like it was mythical. It's beautiful and it's stunning. And there were human beings that I had never seen before. All I had seen up until that point was IDF people in military fatigues and they were shooting at kids my age. And this time I was actually meeting kids my age and they had smiles on their faces. They were, I, we were learning side by side and we were we were able to to talk to each other in a way that was completely foreign like it was it was something that was both beautiful and intimidating all at the same time and so that's been my journey like how do we start to ask questions of each other and start to create spaces for one another where interactions happen where we don't just instill the firewall between us and say it's not possible there's absolutely no way that it's possible um, but instead start to say you know i know this is hard how can i put one foot in front of the other and just see for myself mm. oh that is it's so powerful and it's it's actually reminding me i haven't been able to travel the world as much as i would like but there have been a couple of places i've been and i went to jordan years ago with a couple of people who were israeli and we crossed over through a lot i think it was and they were the israelis were terrified 
the entire time. We got into a van, we're driving through this desert and countryside, it's getting sort of more beautiful and these uh, natural kind of statuesque rocks and, and uh, just what nature has crafted in this beautiful place. And the people could not have been nicer. And the tour guide and the guy driving the van could not have been nicer, but the people I was with, they were shaking. And, and there was no reason for them to be based on what was happening in the moment, but it was all con a conditioned response. And it wasn't until about two days into it that they actually started to breathe because it was a wonderful trip and everyone was very kind. But it reminds me of this episode I did a number of months ago with someone who was raised uh, in South Africa during apartheid. And what it does when this fear gets into your system and that it's not based on the reality of the situation around you. Sometimes it is, right? And sometimes it's really not. And being able to understand that, how we're going to have all these conditioned responses, but that you want to be able to, to see the evidence before your eyes and assess that as the way to respond to it. Uh, and so being able to give people an opportunity to talk to each other is a really wonderful uh, wonderful thing. And so this organization has now, what do you think? I mean, it, it reaches how many people just directly, and I'm sure also indirectly, it's hard to know, but directly. Well, directly, we've had well over 400 people go through our programs, and that includes um, our high school students. We have a program for professionals um, and storytelling uh, journey, really, because whenever you tell your story in a vulnerable way, it's a really difficult thing to do. And so that's that's well over 400, but that we've also had um, a number of public programs, and though we're def we're in like like this last year, we hit um, whether it's different public programs and speaking events, we hit 12,000, and then hundreds of thousands who have watched our videos. It's interesting, like every time we put on our up one of our videos, you know, I think to myself, okay, like we're we're putting ourselves out there yet again and it's hard to be vulnerable and to put yourself out there and then all the, the the comments come in and by and large yes there are people who don't like what we do and there are people who love what we do and people are thirsty and hungry for something that is different that isn't always the status quo and that has the tenacity to look at each other and be willing to to actually see and to actually listen. So it's reminding me also of the responses that I got to this episode on apartheid, which was actually just about conditioned response. It wasn't about politics. It, it just was about what it does when things get under your skin. And then we did a whole episode the following week about the responses that we got, because <laughs> some were wonderful, as you're saying, and some were really horrifying. Uh, and usually the ones that were horrifying were actually responding to something we didn't say. And so I think you probably find that too, that they're responding to a message they think you've given or um, something that they think that you're saying. And that's not at all what it was about. Um, so people will hear what they want to hear and then respond to that. And then it becomes sort of down the rabbit hole. Um, and then you can just, you know, kind of take, Put that off to the side so you can stay focused on the work that you want to be able to do. I know also that there are some things that I remember finding out about through your organization where there are kids who have an opportunity to be together, teens and adults in other ways. So what are some of the shared experiences that your organization provides? But even sort of a, a bigger question is, 
what sort of experiences do you find are important to find that common ground? Yeah. So to your point about people responding sometimes to something you didn't even say, um, so uh, Dr. Bryant Marks um, has this uh, series of different um, implicit bias trainings that he's uh, led nationally um, and, and all over. And I think there's something specific that he says that's really important, which is that implicit bias is much more prevalent than explicit bias because our minds are cognitive machines that encode and store many associations between groups and traits that we have not consciously processed. Mm. And it's the not consciously processed that's especially, I think, important because when people are responding, like there's clearly something in there that needs to come out, but it hasn't been processed. So whether or not like they've had the opportunity to vent it, to explore it, to confront it, at least they're confronting it now as ugly as their response might actually be or might it might be coming across. But giving people that space to be able to start unpacking some of that unconscious under, you know, that that's that bias that is inside of all of us. Um, like a lot of people, you know, will even be interviewing for our program because we want people to take this series seriously. And people will walk in and they'll say like, you know, I am the peacekeeper. Like I have no bias. Um, like that's, you know, I'm, I'm usually the mediator, like that's, I, I want to see the best in all people. And like, while those are very important things, um, every single one of us holds on to these biases that we haven't processed yet, um, that literally are riding underneath our skin, or maybe it's deep, deep inside of us. Um, and giving people the opportunity through our programs, um, like we bring say 18, um, uh, nine Muslims, nine Jews into this team program, or also 18, nine Muslim, um, it ranges like between 18 and 24, where we have the same number of Jews, roughly to the same number of Muslims in similar demographics as in like places in life, but come from lots of different backgrounds. So diversity is really important to make sure that we're having, we have the Iranian or the Persian, um, backgrounds, whether it's Muslim or Jewish and having, um, people who are African-American, um, be that Jews of color or African-American Muslims and, and Arabs and South Asians and, and having a good mix of all so that we can actually start to address some of these issues that are still in, that are in, that we haven't really been able to explore, but so that, so that you can start confronting them slowly and compassionately um, in a space that is both safe and trusted. And what I mean by safe isn't to say that like, you know, where like, yes, like the, the physical space is safe, but also that you feel like you can make mistakes in this space where if you say something and you know, the biggest consequence, which is the most important consequence is that like you said something and then somebody you actually start to trust and appreciate is sitting across from you and they're horrified by something they you say and they articulate to you why they're horrified they don't shut down but and even if they do shut down there's a facilitator in the room who's paying attention who says who's who's following up with them to make sure that they can they can respond in a way that is true to who they are because every single one of us being able to speak our truth being able to speak our experiences is actually really important um that we're not just listening to the other side, but we're also hearing and articulating what is deep inside of us and what's being triggered inside of us. 
And so we carefully create these group conversations where people can start to explore whether it's in different areas of faith or whether it's being a minority in America, whether it's being um, a woman, whether it's like all these different components of identity um, and giving people the space to talk about it and to to make mistakes, but then also to to find their core and their strengths so that we all come out rooted. Um, and so it's not that you're having to say like, you know, my tradition is bad, but instead you're actually saying there are things in my tradition that are challenging to me and I'm being vulnerable and I'm expressing that. And, um, there, and I am very deeply rooted in my tradition and I love it. So like being able to hold that paradox, um, and to say like, I, I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of who I am. Um, and we work through a lot of difficult conversations together. And that's really what we're trying to build, a cohort, a family, a, a community of people who will continue to call on each other after the cohort has completed its 10-month cycle to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm really challenged by the news right now. How can, you know, uh, let's have a conversation. Um, and one of the things that um, Dr. Bryant Marks talks about in his implicit bias training is that if you really want to confront this implicit bias that is unprocessed, then the one, then the way to do it is to bring people in relationship, multiple people in relationship over periods of time. Because when I am friends with 10 Jews instead of just one, I no longer attribute all traits about Judaism to one Jew, but instead I start to see the diversity that is within the same community. Mm -hmm. And I've also got, say, nine or 10 Muslims, say, on my side. I'm only speaking as because I'm a Muslim woman. So, um, and I'll, I'll see the diversity and the very big differences of opinion that lie within, you know, people from my own background. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they will check some of my own held beliefs about my own people, whatever my own people looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that process is the process that we can start to really unpack and harvest and see ourselves more deeply. Mm. Okay, so there's so much there to, to talk about and it, it's reminding me uh, how important it is to have these safe spaces and how important it is also to be able to be honest within these safe spaces to say, you know, ouch. Uh, and so let me tell you why that, that hurt. Uh, and let me also be able to explain, uh, something about me and something about the way I feel, but being able to really be honest about that, that wow, that really is, that's either a harmful statement or a hurtful statement and being able to move beyond that moment. I, I remember also, you know, going to school, going to undergrad in Boston and you think in a big city, people have met well, Jewish people, not not necessarily. So there were some questions that I would get uh, that blew my mind. I thought people were joking. I remember a person who was seventh generation Bostonian, and uh, he came by my dorm and he said, my grandmother has a question for you. Are Jewish people buried standing up? And I thought, that's why you came, first of all, like, you know, like, hi, how are you? Normally we start conversations that way. But um, I said, no, uh, Jewish people are people like other people and we're buried the way other people are buried. And also if somebody is dead, they're not standing up. 
I mean, well, just, just, just thinking about that, like, how's that even possible? But that there was this sense of other. If you're not a, really a human being in the same way that we're a human being, then you're going to do some very fundamental things in very different ways. And this is what his grandmother had been taught by her pastor. But what I noticed was that people had facts, very clear facts about other people that were negative without having met them. Uh, and it's much easier to have those facts that are negative without exposure. And even young children who say they know, they know what those people are like or what people who are different from them are like until they meet them. And then it interferes with the quote unquote facts. And that is a really, really powerful moment. And sometimes it's just having to have a conversation with someone else or being given the opportunity to have a conversation and see what's the same rather than what's different. And I think people don't realize how important those moments are, not even just with nationalities or with religions, but also with genders, as you're saying, being a woman. And so I'm wondering about some of those opportunities that you've given people. What have you noticed? What have been some of the takeaways, some of those surprising, wonderful moments of connection and understanding? I'm sure there are a lot of stories you can reference. Yeah, I mean, like the... There's so many, like we, so one of the things that we do is like, we're building people's capacity to have difficult conversations slowly. Like that's something that's consistent through everything that we're doing because, you know, you know, gender issues like are like some of the most explosive. Um, and that happens way before we start talking about Israel, Palestine. But one of the stories that came out in a specific around gender is like towards the beginning of our program, um, People are, are, we ask all the Muslims to take Jews on a prayer journey in something specific in the Muslim tradition. And we ask the Jews to take Muslims on a prayer journey through Shabbat also. And so they have to curate and craft something. So we want it both to be meaningful and informative. Um, and so they can decide on how they want to make it happen. And that's like usually the very first explosion or actually I should say series of controlled explosions that happened in the program because people have like, they might say that they don't have a practice, but then the moment somebody else has a more religious practice um, in the way that, you know, is more religious than the way they want it to be done, all of a sudden they're very like beholden to like the way they did it. And so it's interesting, like how like internally they'll trigger each other. And um, both Muslims and Jews, it's it's, it's equal triggering. Um, and then they they go on this journey together, um, and like it's it's a beautiful thing, like because people have to really struggle to do this. Um, and uh, and then one particular year, this happened in the Muslim cohort. Um, the man, uh, the woman wanted to do something about. Uh, whether she wanted to do the call to prayer, I'm fuzzy on those particular details, but the one of the men had a really hard time with it and he just couldn't do it. Like it was just really difficult and he was saying all sorts of things um, and he had agreed to something and then he kind of went back and then to the point that it was so tense that the woman had to like leave in the middle of the presentation and vomit outside because she just couldn't handle him. In that, in his reflection afterwards, he realized that his needing to hold on to things the way he wanted to see them was actually pushing another Muslim away from 
her practice and from her prayer. Um, and he realized that that especially wasn't okay. And so it was this moment of really being able to see someone even within your own space um, and the softening that happened and the ability to really actually look at and appreciate the pluralism that exists even within our same traditions, that we can all appreciate and and, and come to things from different paths, um, but that it's, it's not our job to actually push each other away, but to like own what is within. And I think that's especially one of the things. Um, and like this, this process of the, the personal personal growth is actually something that we do a lot of, whether it's internal reflection and connection. But another one that, that took place, I remember, so we eventually we work our way, like there's a, a number of sessions, they're like three and a half hours long over the course of a number of months. There's a one uh, full weekend retreat and retreat is really just code for like a long period of time that's going to be exhausting. Um, so we start before Shabbat comes in on Friday and then we end by Sunday afternoon. People stay like Muslim and a Jew in each room. Um, and there we've got programming and self-reflection and all that stuff packed in this one weekend. So that's the, the prayers what I described in our first weekend and like they, we connect a lot together and then we work our way through a number of series of sessions. And then we have another big weekend, this one on Israel, Palestine. Um, and I remember in the Israel Palestine uh, retreat, like we had, um, we had a number of specifically observant Jews that year who were uh, had at the first retreat um, done a lot of prayer, and the Muslims were doing a lot of prayer, but the, the Jews had on and they had wrapped tefillah around their arm, um, and and as they had prayed, uh, and. For one of the triggers, because we do a lot of with trigger words at the second retreat, so it's trigger words, trigger images, and the idea is that it, we say a lot of things that mean we say these one word that is packed with so much meaning, and it's a, a lot of perspectives, and there's they mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, and so to help unpack it, like we actually name the word. Um, or show the picture and ask people to give their initial responses to it. And then they can hear or they can read what their peers, who they by this time love and trust, um, are saying about this one word that either means a lot to them or they see as, you know, something that is not positive. And so um, we had a, a picture and it was, uh, so we had two pictures that year. One was of a child who had been um, in, in a, wrapped in a white shroud because they'd been killed in Gaza and the father who was carrying the child. Um, so it was very raw and it was very recent. And then the second one was of a hand that had been wrapped in, in tefillah that had been in prayer and it was all bloody. And that was the year of the stabbing and killing in Jerusalem. It was tense and it was hard. Um, and initially when people had first started it, like one person, like you were saying, was responding to something we hadn't even said or done. And she was just angry to even have to even see the images. Um, and then, and, and then like, you know, the process of unpacking and just listening. Um, and then one person came up to me, sat like just before we even started unpacking the trigger words, it was like the night before, um, but it was up on the wall. 
and she just she's she was muslim and she started bawling and she was like it's, i can't i can't I, I didn't even know how to have words here like when i look at that that hand that is was wrapped and i know that why it's wrapped it's wrapped because of prayer like it was to be in a state of holiness and i see the blood and like all I can see is the hands of the people who are in that room who I love and trust. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't even, I don't have the words. Like it hurts me so deeply that a Muslim could be pot, could be responsible for this. Like, how is that even possible? And so she had with all of her questions and all of her pain, like it was actually her tears that helped melt the anger of the other person and the other people. And like them connecting with each other and being able to see how, they how all of these things like mattered so much to each other but that like it was actually it was it's the tears it's it's the deep vulnerability where people really start to see each other mm -hmm. and that's actually been the hardest thing for me to learn over the years because i used to think that it's all about like knowing your story and being articulate and all these things but it's actually the raw moments of vulnerability where people connect the most Oh, um, yeah. So I got teary, of course, while you were telling that story. It's very, very powerful. People are not born this way, right? They, they're born these sort of clean slates, and they have an opportunity to be guided in a way that helps with connection, uh, or guided in a way that promotes hatred uh, and distrust and whatever else. But yes, I think when you look back and you're able to see or you're willing to see what you feel like your own people are doing um there is shame there is anger about it you feel like they're not representing they're not re representing so much of the history or the beautiful parts of your history and that there is some embarrassment about that and sadness of course about it and also there's a powerlessness about it you know that that there's only so much you feel like you can do and that's why i think organizations like yours are important because it gives people a sense of being able to do something. But I think about how much we would all be able to connect if the powers that be that fed off of our dissension and our hatred got out of the way. Because if they didn't need that so much, if they didn't feed off of it, if it didn't serve their purpose or do whatever, or give them power, then I think people would be able to have moments where they could bring out their better selves. And as the situation is right now in a lot of different places, people are really in, encouraged to bring out their worst selves uh, in every direction. And I, yeah, I really dislike ha having to see that because I think, yeah, if they were just left to their own devices, they would be playing with each other. They would be hanging out. They'd be making meals together. They would see what is the same again. There was a story I remember hearing also about uh, communal prayer on the beach and, um, and those kinds of moments where I think people just were kind of intrigued and joined. And can you talk about those stories? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, we had a, the group of fellows and like we had asked them to do this shared prayer that I described earlier. And they kind of really had a tough time with it. They kind of resisted it for a little bit. And they were like, I don't know that I can pray authentically and still have to like put on something for somebody else. And so I saw them like Jews were doing uh, 
literally prayers before Shabbat, before the presentation had even begun so that they had their spiritual connection and were true to their practice. And then we went on the, did this Shabbat experience Mm -hmm. with them. Um, And then later the, that night and, and later on when people were doing prayers, they noticed that they were doing prayers in the same space and that it was happening organically and they didn't feel like one was intruding on the other. If anything, they were actually in a deeper state of spirituality, being fully true to their own tradition and the way that that worked for them. And so they decided for their um through their project because anyone who goes through our programs does a a joint muslim jewish project together that they were going to pray in the city of angels starting from beach in santa monica and work their way in public spaces all the way to downtown la for the day and so it's this beautiful um prayer experience that is captured on video um and uh it's of them really being in holy space side by side um and on their way, actually traveling from one spot to the other, maybe it was into downtown, um, the one of the Muslims kept getting these messages on his phone that were saying, we're okay, don't worry about us, like, we're, we're home, we're safe, the whole area is on lockdown. And he was, you know, now really wanting to know more information. And it had turned out that somebody had... Um, organized a draw Muhammad day in Texas somewhere. And like, it was, it was meant to incite anger in some way. Um, but then somebody had driven and like, well, there was a, a Muslim driven drove from another state. Now I'm really fuzzy on the details. And like, there was, there was worry that there was going to be, there, there was going to be violence. And in that moment, he realized that, you know, what they were doing wasn't just for them. It was something that, um, it was important that that it, there, there there needed to be another alternative out there that it wasn't just about inciting anger in each other but inciting the better parts of ourselves with and, and showing like what else is possible and so they prayed side by side um and then they launched this beautiful video and the the video made it around the globe and to my surprise it got picked up even more so in Egypt and Pakistan. Um, And people were, they just wanted to crave, they wanted to see something that was different. And that's the video that actually by far has the largest views. It's got hundreds of thousands of views and people have have copied it and done side-by-side prayer in other parts of the country because they just wanted to, to be in genuine spiritual community with each other. And where would people find this video? What is it called? Or maybe you can send a link and I'll post it. That would be great. Um, it's called Two Faced, One Prayer. Um, and so it's it's both available on uh, Facebook and on YouTube. But if you put in Two Faced, One Prayer, it'll come up and I'll, I will gladly share the link. It's really wonderful. And so so I want, even though this is this wonderful, beautiful, warm moment, we don't want to take us back into the difficult parts of this, but I, I do want to revisit something for a moment which is, you know, just in our conversation a little bit back and forth through email before this, this idea that there are some ways that people's opinions get formed, both positive and negative. I know the political climate that we're in, not just here in the United States, but in different parts of the world, are going to add, unfortunately, to the way that people are negatively influenced. And again, I think bringing out their 
id, you know, rather than ego bringing out just that sort of very primal fear, hatred, those kinds of emotions. Um, and what have you noticed since the, the political climate has changed and there's been more division? Uh, has that affected the people within your organization? And also what sort of techniques do you think, sort of a two-part question, what techniques do you think have been the most powerful to shift people's opinions of each other, both negatively and positively? Well, what I've noticed in the last few years, especially, is that there is, a, there is still a lot of goodwill out there. Um, people are, I've seen a lot of people have reached out and there's, there's, there's solid fear and, and deep concern. Um, and there's a willingness to show up for each other that I didn't see before. Like before we were definitely showing up for each other, but now I'm really showing up for each other. And people are, are more spontaneously coming together um, and forming and just and having conversations. And uh, we've had some really, really intense conversations. And I think that's actually the critical piece. It's the in-face, one-on-one or, or small group conversations. There is absolutely no replacement for one-on-one -on -one contact where you are looking at another person in the eyes and you are saying like, I'm really challenged right here. Like I, I need, I need to talk. So it's, it's actually a good mix of both social media to pull people in as a tool, but not to have the conversation. Like social media is a space that um, we just haven't created great ethics around how we engage one another in meaningful ways. Like I know that we can do much better there and it's a great tool where you can connect to one another. So we choose to use it as a tool to connect. And once things get real, we invite each other to have in-person conversations. And so we've, uh, people have shown up time and time again recently, like even like, especially among our alumni who say like, I'm having an Islamophobic moment and I really need to be with my Muslim friends right now because I know and I value your opinions and I'm having a tough time or whatever on the other side. And so just because we go through a powerful, intense experience together doesn't mean that it should stop there. But like your point earlier, that we have to convene and continue to convene smaller spaces that where people can, can, can be genuinely themselves with one another, when we're not fully inhibited, but where we are free to speak and able to, to, to dive in deeper. And there's a lot of time that goes into that. And it's very rewarding once you've invested, um, but you have to invest in it. So, you know, like for me to even convene a conversation, it's not just convening a conversation. I have to think of making sure that there's no interruptions in the space, making sure that there's food um, <clears throat> that everyone can actually enjoy um, and making sure that we have a set amount of time to be able to get through things um, and figuring out like, who's going to be facilitating and who's going to be actually talking because it's really hard to do both. Um, and that it's, it's an important and, and a sacred role for people. And so it's, it's really kind of knowing all what all of our roles are. Um, and so really the, to kind of circle back to uh, your question, like, I mean, I see social media as a really important tool to convene 
And I think it's really important that we start taking our conversations, the hard conversations into the in-person that it's, it's both, it's, it's important to not be disconnected from that world and it's ridiculously exhausting. And we have to start recognizing when we're especially exhausted and opting to just take a break ourselves. Um, but keeping, um, making sure that we're, we're convening space with people that are different from us who have different opinions, isn't it like, it's, it's something that makes us healthier. It actually makes us stronger and it helps us not um, see the other as a monster. Um, I think that's actually one of the things that we've lost sight of right now is our ability to see another human being who has a different opinion from ourselves as a human being. And that we can give them the benefit of the doubt and listen to an opinion that is very, you know, triggering for us, but that we can still listen deeply and say, you know, here's what I think I, is really important to you. Did I get that right? And here's what's really important to me. Can you see that? Right. Right. Yes. And I, and I think, you know, I think about even with the, the work that I do and, and, um, I would hope that I am somebody who is open-minded, but I hear myself saying certain things just in terms of my politics being different from other people's. And I, I hear myself saying, yes, I'm going to be very open to that person's opinion, no matter how wrong they are. And I think, wait, what did I, what did I just say? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's not good. Uh, so then I realized I had to sort of start back with, I'm going to be open to those person's opinions, period. And that's a hard one because we are we are conditioned and we're also fearful and and we can become. Um, it's interesting. It's it's like there's something very regressive about sometimes what happens in the world and when there is dissension between people and infighting and and organizations like yours and other sort of efforts around the world. It's like encouraging people to be adults, to raise the bar, to have a conversation where they really are going to be face-to-face, they're going to need to face that person and know that you're providing that safe space because otherwise it's never, well, it's probably not going to go well. There was actually a video recently that was posted online um, and it said on the top, uh, arguing on social media. And it had these uh, whole line of guard dogs. One, on, I don't know if you've seen it, there was a fence between them. It was a fence, it was actually a gate. And they were barking and ferocious and, and, and um, showing their teeth and uh, trying to bite at each other through the fence. And what they didn't realize was the latch had come undone on it and it started to open. And mm-hmm. as soon as the dogs noticed that the gate was opening, which meant that they could actually have access to each other, they all calmed down and just walked away. Uh, like we didn't actually want to have a real fight. We just behind the fence where you couldn't reach us. We were going to be really fierce and really mean and show our teeth and not actually have to deal with actually touching you, realizing that we could actually just be walking together and playing together. And so there's so much about the distance that can bring out the worst in people. So reversing it, even though, yes, there are always going to be some people who love the power and they love being able to keep the fight going because they feed off of it in one way or another, uh, or the group that they're with feeds off of it in one way or another, and they have to answer back to them. Um, I, I think that there's, there's also something about the word tolerance 
because I've always sort of had an issue with the word tolerance. I think we shouldn't just tolerate each other. And I'm wondering what other words, because so much of this shifting people's opinions is about shifting the language, as you were talking about, about the words that we use and the words that trigger us. What are some other words that we can use that people with, within your circle, within your organization are using that are, I think, a little more, more tolerant than tolerance? Yeah, the construction of how we are creating language that is inclusive. So the word inclusivity, and then also how we create a place of belonging where each of us deserves respect and belonging and that we can make sure that we're holding that up for everybody. I like that. Respect and belonging. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of belonging too is very important because I think sometimes people will connect with these groups that are really incendiary just because they want to have a connection. They want to belong to something. It's guiding them poorly, I think, and it's guiding them in a dangerous direction. But a lot of people I've talked to said that they got involved in whatever it was, some kind of dangerous group, just because the people there cared about them or helped them celebrate their birthday. Uh, even though the common message was hatred about another, that was actually less important to them than having that place where they felt connected. And so having a place of belonging, I think is a very important thing. And I think people don't realize how much people crave that and need that and how that's a much more kind of uh, limited uh, opportunity for people now, for whatever reason. Oh, absolutely. Because like we vilify each other and it's so easy to just create, people do ugly things and it's important to name those ugly things um, and keep ourselves in, you know, making sure that we're protecting our families and our safety. And what we lose sight of in our protection is that when we vilify another, we create it impossible, make it impossible for them to still belong and, and be part of like, they're eventually going to make their way out of prison. And like, how are we actually going to create space that allows them to come back in, um, in a way that where we still feel safe. And like, I, like the long-term strategy somehow lost in that short range, like protection. Um, and I like one of the stories that like really hits me hard is I was at, doing a, a, a tour of a, a church with a, a dear friend, um, uh, Father Brendan Bussey last week. And he was talking about how the women in their surrounding areas of this, of this church were saying, you know, like he's somebody's child. He is somebody's child, whoever he is that's creating whatever violent, aggressive offense, like he's somebody's child. And so they started to walk around the neighborhood and say, um, say things like, uh, Miho, you're, you're part of me. You are part of me. And this one, especially older woman kept walking around and she would look at the guys in the eye and she would say, Miho, where are you going? Um, if something were to happen to you, it would break my heart. It would break my heart. And then Father Brandon said like she would the, the guys would come to him and they would say, Nobody's ever talked to us like that before. Nobody's ever actually said that they care. Um, and then they started to do more within the community and to help keep and create and continue to sustain greater community. And so 
when we actually take care of each other um, and we mentor each other, because I think mentorship and calling each other out compassionately and, you know, what we have to take care of and make sure that our spaces are safe is important. Um, and like creating space so that people are, are, are all, they know that they will always have a space at the table. Um, and that they'll, you know, they will, they, they still are deserving of compassion is important. I know that we need to finish up. And if there was anything else that you wanted to make sure to say, please feel free to do so. That story is very, very beautiful about also giving people this idea that they don't have to do something. They don't have to prove something about themselves. They don't like getting involved in a gang where you have to sort of commit a crime to prove that you could be part of something. Here, these people were just, well, they just were. They, they were just being, and they were being recognized for just being and their humanity. And that's quite beautiful and, and powerful and easy. I think people don't realize how easy those moments can be if they know that that's going to work. And also they remember to say those things. Um, so anything else before we finish up today? No, I, I feel like you actually wrapped it up really well. I think I would end with like just having presence, real, genuine presence of like being in every single situation that we're actually there and we're seeing the human being in front of us. It, it's like, it starts with those one-on-ones and it doesn't have to be with the other all the time. It can be with our loved ones. It can be with our coworkers. Like, but that it, there's something really important about simply being in the presence of another and giving them the due um, attention um, to make sure that like they get out of that moment what they need and you get out of the moment what you need. And it eventually like it becomes a muscle that we become more and more proficient at. And like the more we exercise these muscles of presence and kindness and compassion, the stronger we will be at doing just that and inspiring just that. It's beautiful. Aziza, thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for the work that you're doing. You know, you know that it's impacting the people who um, you get to see, but also that it has this exponential impact. And that's what you hope for, that it starts this domino effect in this really beautiful way. And so um, kudos to you. And thank you again for today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Good. Okay. I hope to talk to you again soon. One more thing before you go. Speaking with Aziza Hassan was powerful. I think what our organization does is not only make it available to create connections, but make it possible. But it's very realistic, and she is very realistic, about how difficult those conversations can be and how difficult it can be to find common ground or middle ground or new ground altogether. There are many times kids growing up in the world spout the beliefs of their families because that's what they were exposed to and that's how they were trained to think. And it's not until they get older that they realize they might feel a different way, but they're not quite sure how to start the conversation with people they had grown to fear or grown up to hate. Sometimes being close-minded and fearful of the other is something that becomes reflexive and subconscious. And it can dictate our behaviors and our attitudes and ones that we unfortunately pass along to the next generations. It's difficult to have conversations that have so much potential conflict and that stir up potential discord. And it's also realistic to know that people come to the table at times with years of history 
sometimes multi, multi-generational history of really both things being true simultaneously, that there were potential wrongdoings on both sides because we're dealing with people being human beings. But there were also gross misinterpretations and overinterpretations and missed opportunities for connection and fear-mongering and the destruction of reputation in each other's eyes because the people who are part of those conflicts either derive pleasure from the conflict or benefit from it or are brainwashed by those in power who feed off of the conflict. There's this other piece that also makes it multidimensional. Because while there is real distrust and discord between people of different religions and ethnicities and races, there can also be discord and conflict and competition and distrust within each religion and nationality and ethnicity. I remember being at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. It was wintertime as night was falling and the cobblestone streets were wet and a bit icy. It gets cold up there during the wintertime. It was quite an effort to get there, but it was worth it. I had been there when I was young and when I was a teenager, and now I was bringing my own children there. So I was standing next to one of my kids who was very shy at the time, and this was his first visit to the wall where we were saying a prayer and placing a little note in the wall, as is the custom to do, when you want to send a prayer or a wish, a wish for someone's healing, a wish for something for the world. And I sang a prayer and was teaching it to my son and an ultra-Orthodox woman from a particular sect standing next to me started yelling at me, telling me to be quiet. And it scared my son. So unfortunately, his first memory of being at this place across the world was one of tears and fear, unfortunately. She yelled at me to stop singing this prayer because she believed women were not supposed to use a full voice when praying or singing so that they did not distract the men from their prayers. I remember going to this place again when I was younger and remembering that it was not like it is now. It had been kind of more liberal as I see it. Women and men prayed side by side, but now there was a division by gender which had been set in place by more traditional adherence to my religion, and I do honestly hope it changes back one day. But while this woman truly believed that her feelings about what I was doing were right. I remember thinking, there are so many people who are anti-Semitic and there are so many people surrounding Israel who are hoping for its destruction or working towards its destruction. So why could it possibly be that she does not see how short-sighted and unnecessarily divisive it is for one Jew to turn on another? I also have a Palestinian friend who plays the oud. It's a very cool instrument. You can look it up. And he loves to play with people of all religions, and he spends time at night with his Jewish girlfriend who plays guitar and flute. He lives with friends as his family unfortunately kicked him out when he did not agree to break up with her. They are just musicians and kind of hippies. They met at a reggae concert in Jerusalem. They're committed to a peaceful world, but they cannot express their love of each other in front of anyone. His family has turned on him and now sees him as a traitor, even though 
he feels he is honoring the way he was raised by being true to his heart. So when you think about how there is division and tension, infighting, fragmentation within faiths and religions and cultures themselves, you get a sense of the size of the task taken on by those who hope and try to connect those on either side of the fence. We are constantly needing to fight against human nature and the push towards doing something that I call being righter than thou. I know that's not necessarily grammatically correct, but it's a phrase I think of a lot because there seems to be this great sense of self-satisfaction while having this sort of superiority or the feeling of superiority, but it's at the cost of peace. So how do you turn things around? It's a big question, and I know there are many ideas that people have about that. When thinking about Aziza's organization, it seems that having actual conversations and dealing directly with the programming, with the indoctrination, helps tremendously. And being able to answer honestly, does it really make you more right or more powerful if you can think that you are more right? Or if you can put someone down for not believing the way you do or not coming to the same kind of conclusion or not coming from the same tradition or even just not speaking the same language, people don't often remember that they don't look good putting other people down. It happens way too often. One of the most important things I think that you can also do that is quite powerful is when you see someone trying to egg you on to join in on their superiority and join forces to put other people down or ostracize them or defame them, that you sidestep that and don't connect with them or link arms with their intolerance. If they are left as the lone voice, that's often when things get diffused and a conflict doesn't have fuel given to it to burn for longer. So I wanted to tell you a story. A husband and wife from Vietnam have run a lunch place in the building where I have worked for many, many years. They're in their 60s, I think, have been married for over 40 years. I hear them chatting a bit with the people who come in. He works in the back preparing food, and she works the front counter, and her name is Mai. She speaks very broken English. And so in the place of clear communication, there is often a lot of kind of pointing at the selections on the menu, followed by smiles and nods and agreement and thank yous and bye-bye, have a good day. They are well-known and well-loved. And one day a man came in who was kind of large and in charge, loud and imposing. He came in asking the people waiting to order if the food was any good here. He had heard it was and he was in town for a meeting and he wanted to get some good, delicious lunch and he thought he'd give it a shot. So when he got to the counter to order what he wanted, the woman behind the counter, Mai, didn't quite understand what he said and asked him to repeat it. And she asked him in her very heavy, accented and broken English. And this seemed to cause him to start to get frustrated with her. And he asked her how long she had been in America. And you could feel the tension in the room. And you just knew where this conversation was going. 
She had not dealt with this before in the building, at least not as far as we knew or we had seen. And so she answered his question saying, we are in America 27 years. He turned to look at everybody standing there and try to connect with us as though we all would see this as equally ridiculous. And he then asked her if she was here legally. And that's when I stepped in and said, my, you don't have to answer that. I don't know if she's here legally or not. I don't care if she's here legally or not. And that wasn't the point. He was goading her and trying to have her share information publicly that he would then put down or make fun of. So he turned to me and said, what are you, some kind of liberal? And the man standing behind me put his hand on my shoulder and laughed and said exactly to me what I said to the woman behind the counter. You don't have to answer that. It was actually a wonderful moment. The man who was visiting the building then looked at all of us and mumbled something about the world going to hell and left with his grandiosity and xenophobia and air of entitlement. I'm sure there was no satisfaction there for him. He could not get any traction. No one was biting at the lure that he had thrown out. And that's when it all ended. The room went back to the way it felt before he had walked in. If he had set a fire and other people in the room decided to join, either because they agreed with him or because they were just in bad moods or they just wanted to feel powerful and strong and part of something, then the fire could have raged out of control. But there was something very, very powerful about not engaging because you could see that the resistance to this man's attempt to stoke the flames was what immediately and powerfully put the fire out. So don't underestimate the power of that. While you can't stop someone from walking in with a fire already raging in them, know that it will only spread if given more fuel. Talk to you next week. As we move into the new year, I am thinking about people who have moved from one part of their lives to another, who have needed to say goodbye to their old life or their relationships, and have needed to somehow emerge into the world again, or into the world for the first time, and into a safer place, a safer environment with healthier people. And I would love to know how you do it and how you did it and what helped along the way. It's so important for the listeners to be able to learn from you. So as the new year begins, I'll be doing another call-in show. And this one with the theme of new beginnings. So if you'd like to have a question that you'd like me to answer on the show, or if you'd like to kind of give a brief synopsis, about what helped you end the old part of your life and start anew and what challenges you had and even also what was not helpful, what was not good to do on your way. That's educational as well. Please leave a message at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com if you want to leave a written message and you can let me know if you'd like me to use your name or not. Or you can leave a voicemail message on my office line, 
at 818-907-0036. If it cuts you off, then just call back and continue your message. And let me know also if you want me to use your name or not. Please do so within the next few weeks so I can put together the call-in show as we begin the new year. Thank you so much. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.